Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. to the developing. I'm your host, Desiree Wanden, Des for short. And today we have a very, very special guest on this episode of All Power to the Developing. This gentleman's work spans numerous decades, and he's one of the most seminal figures in the social constructionism movement. He is the American psychologist and social theorist, Ken Gergen. How are you doing, Mr. Gergen? I'm fine, Des. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. How is everything on your end these days? Chaotic. Yes. Um, isn't it yours too? Absolutely. We live in a very chaotic world, and, and it's so interesting that you, you use that word to express um, things because dealing with social constructionism, we're dealing with things, different things on the external that could be affecting us, right? Well, I, I guess so. why I pause is. Um, I'm not real fond of things affecting us. Uh. <laughs> that is, I think they affect us primarily in terms of our interpretations, which is the constructionist view. In other words, I'm trying to get away as a social theorist in terms of social relations, in terms of human action, from a cause and effect orientation, which has been so common in the sciences, yeah. that they cause us to do what we do. So I'd rather look at it as a kind of a relation I have with the world. Um, I interpret. It gives me something to interpret, but it, we co-create it. But I have a big input on how, how I understand that, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Definitely. Whatever it is there. Yeah. So I want to take it back, all the way back with you, um, back to... You know, when you first came up as a young man, one thing that struck me just on looking into you is you grew up in a very tumultuous time. Um, World War II was, was emerging. Um, Hiroshima, the bomb has dropped. Many different things were taking place throughout that time. Later on, the civil rights movement would happen. Vietnam would take place. Growing up as a young man in this time, um, just take us there as the audience. Who were you as a young man? And... How was it well, for you? Yeah, it sort of depends on where you begin with young, because uh, I think during my, let's say, high school, college, and graduate school years, uh, there was not that sense of, of tumult. Primarily, I, it was a period, we, we look at it now as modernism, in which science reigned, rationality reigned, and the idea was that we could control virtually everything it went on slightly. We could have an ordered society. We could have psychology which would cure people. We would have everything could be designed similar to architecture. Get rid of those sort of old buildings. Have 
buildings that are designed by you know, almost a scientific way, uh, design your life in a scientific way. And then I went into experimental social psychology, which was part of that ethos. We could do cause-effect relations. We could make predictions on how people would act. We could use those predictions to uh, build policy or build institutions and so on. So in my life up to roughly the 60s is pretty much a modernist life and I wasn't I wasn't deeply unhappy I had my doubts which I could talk about but I wasn't deeply unhappy with it that was the nature of things sure we wanted rationality we wanted reason we want data we wanted planning we want prediction all of that <clears throat> now what happens in the 60s which is where I also began to fall off the wagon um, I was, uh, my first job was at Harvard then teaching. Uh, the hippie world had started. That had begun to get under, we'd gone from beats into hippies with marijuana, with laid back, everything that was sort of anti-modern. Counterculture. Yeah, it was a counterculture. The first counter, real counterculture we've ever had where a huge number of people were disagreeing with order and they were united uh, they were not united by class or anything else they were only connecting with each other virtual tv radio and so on and as they were brought together uh, in a virtual world by and large so anyway that affected me but um I, you know i still had my doubts and then i became involved with a critique of what was happening in mental health, um, I began to, with, I wasn't alone, beginning to feel like the scientific idea of calcifying people into various categories of mental illness was uh, what professional psychiatrists did. And it wasn't, it was their opinion rather than a science. And those categorizations were hurting a lot of people. I was part of a movement, an anti-psychiatry movement. Um, and I finally wrote a paper that questioned my field. Um, and I could talk about that wasn't constructionist at the time. It just raised questions. And all hell broke loose um, against what I had written. Mm. Um, which now alienated me from my from my home base. I mean, I was like a pariah within experimental social ecology and within within the sort of pure science community. Okay, so I, I had this critical piece and I had also you know, anti-psychiatry piece. And now that anti-bit is becoming stronger because now it's at, at Vietnam War is it again and the suspicion of the military-industrial complex. Martin Luther King is hugely important. And the, again, the uh, questioning of the power structure. Um, so you've got a number of movements. Oh, and know you also add in eventually the feminist movement. Which got its wings as well. Um, so increasingly, you you began to have protest. In some sense, I was part of a 
culture of protest without consciously identifying with it, but I can't say it didn't make a difference either. That is that, that sense of questioning. Who is this telling us these things? What are these truths? Whose are they? What are they doing to us? Now, it's out of that mix that uh, I become involved with developing a social constructionist theory. I'm not alone. I'm part of what I would look at as a whole series of dialogues that are going on, going on in sociology, history of science. Uh, they're going on in um, literary theory and critical theory, which had become by then uh, visible. Trying to make sense of all that together in a way that was viable putting together my own vision of what a, a, a full constructionist account would be of knowledge. Right? I'm not the only one to try that, but um, I think I in some way have maybe the clearest and most integrative vision. Um, and again, that's arguable, but it certainly has um, sustained itself in a way which has become uh, shared all over the world at this point. Um, so yes, the environment of, of protest was important to me. Um, it, it gave me, the, in some sense, the courage, um, because I was quite alone and, and quite beaten up by, by my discipline. Um, my doctor father characterized me in a handbook as a dog barking in the night while the caravan moves on. Mm. Um, my teacher said, Yale, at one point I'm giving a talk, he takes out his newspaper and puts it in front of his face so he can shield himself from what I'm talking about. I mean, I get into a major fight with a British philosopher, Karl Popper. I mean, it's just... Um, it wasn't easy, yeah. but so where would you like to go from there? <laughs> so coming out of that, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, obviously, when you try to go against any power structure or power system, there's there tends to be blowback or some type of repercussion because of clearly, that. Clearly. And, um, you suffer the repercussions um, being kind of outcasted by by your peers. But yes, I want to bring up one thing there. Sure. What I kind of was shocked at, I you know, I'm naive to think that I was in a discipline, particularly in academics, where an argument would be reasoned out, you know, would be opinions, and we would eventually work out dialogue. And I could be wrong, uh, but let's talk about it. But then to find out, actually, the chief arguments are rhetorical, that is, painting you as kind of an evil figure in one way, or you don't understand, or you don't see, or uh, is naive, or whatever it is. You, you get ad hominem attacks over and above any kind of reasoned communal decision-making. That kind of shocked me. I was like, I, I, thought, I thought better of academic world than that. And and 
coming out of that, just just for people that may not be familiar with social constructionism, if I'm just John and I'm walking in the library and yeah. I happen to see a book that says social constructionism, how would you define that for us, um, Ken? Basically an orientation, well, not a truth, but an orientation which try, draws attention to the way in which people together fashion or co-create what they take to be real, what they take to be rational, what they take to be good, or moral. So it, it draws attention to the way we together create our world in which our understandings of the world and how we then comport ourselves in it. Now realize that that may seem quite okay. Why is that particularly um, uh, revolutionary? But if you grow up in the modernist era and, you know, and 300 years of the Enlightenment, <clears throat> your job is to understand the world as it is. The world is given, the world of nature, the world of human beings is given. And what you do is try to put it into categories, test it, understand it, research on it, draw conclusions, know it better and better and better, so that you build up a true, the true and objective and neutral understanding of the world. So that, again, we inherit this still in science. Science is the one neutral, objective um, orientation we have to the truth. Everything else is ideology, politics, morale, religion, um, um, which actually undermines the real truth. And because there's only one world, there should only be one truth. So that's the context in which we're working. We're trying to say the world doesn't demand anything in the way of the way we talk about it or the way we understand it. It doesn't require us to do anything. So science is just one, one club, you might say, one religion, one group of people that happen to share particular assumptions and values. So what it does is to open up this space where all cultures, all traditions are given a voice, or at least not kicked out of the, you know, eliminated from the table because they don't have the same assumptions as, as Western scientists. So it, and it also challenges any, any um, statement about what is true on the grounds, yeah, it's true for some people some of the time on their on with their assumptions. So it makes everything it opens up all statements about what is the case up to dialogue. So now you you invite in this vast multiplicity, a whole lot of different ways of looking at the world. And then you ask yourself, well, what are they good for? Not whether they're true, but what what can you do with them? There's a pragmatic question. What do you do with different religions? How do they help? How do they hinder? The same way you can ask the questions about science. So you, you, you move toward a pragmatism, which is kind of informed by a sense of whatever 
the pragmatic pragmatism is, it's also political and ethical implications. That is, it's a, it has an ought attached to the is. So, so it's liberating, it's inviting of inclusion. Um, at the time, it, it opened up a space for reinventing things. You call it X, why couldn't it be Y? Mm. Um, I, and I could give you a lot of examples if you like, but you see the main contours. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. From your, from your point of view, you know, sometimes I think of this. What is the, the benefit or why do you think it is that the, the, what maybe some would call the powers to be or the dominant society wants the everyday person to think in a very linear way? Why is it, why is it that you think that is? That they want the everyday common person to think in this mainstream linear way and not look at it from what you just said a more expansive way or more or give yourself or allow yourself all these different avenues of looking at the world well if you look at it in terms of structures of society like the government and business and so on well, there's an investment in having predictable people hmm. who are subject to cause and effect because you have your you have controls over the cause so people believe in cause and effect, and you believe in order, and the kind of order that you have put in place, um, they're controllable. Uh, everything runs as you, in power, want it to run, which has largely been the case, let's say, in the United States since the beginning of, um, oh, the early 1900s, you know, once, uh, once you had big business, once you had Ford Motor Company and so on, bis large businesses, all of which run sort of on a capitalist basis, you want predictable and controllable people, not people who are questioning whether I really need this, what is it good for, um, who is selling me this, all that suspicion of, hey, could be otherwise. Now, that, that's one side of the coin. There, you could go on to talk about the downsides, but yeah, it pays to invent a controllable, predictable person and to teach the world that the facts of the matter are X, and therefore, of course, you want to organize your life rationally. So you really need, for example, psychiatry. Let's take all the people who don't fit. And then we have categories and we cure them. So I, and by the way, this is a huge problem now. We have a, a, a mental health establishment which gives us all these categories like depression, anxiety, you know, uh, attention deficit, schizophrenia. And they give them to us. So we start looking at ourselves in that way. So we're having a bad time of it. We say, oh my God, I must be depressed. Oh my God, I must be anxious. Um, I may be skits. I may have attention deficit. We go to the therapy. We then now get a um, pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. And what the result of that is, 
mental health as a profession is huge. A number of people now in the United States who was involved with getting help is about one in ten. Um, and the pharmaceutical companies are booming billions of dollars, which will be poured back into mental health to inform the population, hey, here are the problems you might have, here are the therapists, and here are the drugs that can help you. So if you get that that cycle going, you believe that, uh, yeah, all those categories are correct, and you believe that they can be cured with with drugs, you're now part of the, the condition where we are, in fact, in a sense, creating mental illness. <laughs> the mental health professions <laughs> haven't really cured the problem. There's more mental illness now than there's ever been in, in the country, and the United States happened to top the world. When I grew up, people were not classified as mentally ill. They were just a little bit strange, a little bit weird, and we wandered around the community, and we all sort of knew them. And that was like, oh, there's Fred there. He's got a problem. I don't know what it is. But it was, you know, it wasn't mental illness to say nothing of attention deficit disorder, which is, a, I think, a crime on young people. But now you're getting me a, a, on my soapbox. Yes, yeah. Well... What do you think has changed? You just said that that um, I know. Obviously, there's so many factors we could definitely talk about. I mean, everything from the new role technology plays in one's life to just more so um, cities becoming bigger, metropolitan cities becoming bigger, uh, less outdoors. Things are you know different. There's a lot of more factors if we sat down and really put our minds together to why one would say that today there's a lot more of these factors of depression or things like that. But from maybe your viewpoint, what do you think has changed over from the time period of your, of, of the 40s, 50s, and 60s in a, such a tumultuous time um, to now, which is we still have a lot of tumultuous things going on and we still have a society of a lot of of, of downfall and, and, and negativity and trauma going on. But that shine of where you where we we're developing and we have technology and we have this and we have movies and we have all these 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 things that kind of distract us from that what do you think has changed in that in that time period for you no that now we have all of these classifications and if it was in your hands how would you go about things today ken Big questions, but uh, let me let me try this. Sure. Look, the, the constructionist idea is that we together make up and construct the world that we live in. What it, what's good, what's bad, what's useful, uh, what what I should wear, what kind of job is good, the value we place on it. All those we co-construct. No one person can do that. Well, they are strange. But like it's like language. We have to create it together or it isn't language. Nonsense. So we create these worlds. Okay. If you've got, let's say, as you did back in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, very little technology of communication. You know, radio is 
there, but that, which was sort of wonderful. And television slowly in the 50s becomes something, but you like have three channels and they're all saying the same thing, basically. You got kind of a homogeneity. Yeah, there's made differences, but we all know what good and bad. Now look at the technology of communication. Mm-hmm. Is once you've got technologies which can bring people together from different places and agree, you've got the germ of a difference. So there's something else. Some new idea can develop. Uh, it's sometimes said that there's nothing so revolutionary as a road <clears throat> in the sense that it can go through a village or city and connect people that have never been connected. They find each other, they create something else. The, the old ways don't remain. So look at that technology and what's happened today. I mean, it's like mushroom. So 24-7, we can be in contact with people all over the world. Multiple sites of meaning making, multiple sites of constructing my world, the way I see it, or we see it. Profusion of religions, political spectra, uh, national differences, so on and so on. Where part of the chaos is that uh, not because of constructionist theory, but to analyze it in those terms, you've got now a multiplication of realities, values, and possibilities where people can find themselves, I mean, 24-7, wherever they are in the world, they can be part of a cult or a new religion or fan club or gun club or whatever and come to believe that those things are real, right, true, rational, and so on. The part of the chaos that I'm talking about when I come into this is, is just that. Where not only do you have the multiplicities with very little agreement, everybody can argue, no means of, of controlling it, and polarization, because we don't have to do this face to face. Once we once we can say whatever we want and not recognize where we are, who we are, and never have to look a person in the eye and say those things. You just sweeping polarization. You can say anything you want about the other, and it, they say something back, and eventually you've got warring factions that can't stand each other, even though they don't know each other. Never seen them. So that's what worries me now. That I can understand it in constructionist terms, and I also am drawn to things to how to think about what we can do. But at this point, I think we live in a world where it's basically uncontrollable, uncontrollable by any any political power, any business. Um, they can affect it, but they can't control it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're with Ken Gergen. And he's dropping a lot, a lot of knowledge on us with his, his perspective. 
when we come back from the commercial break, we're going to be going to into more of his viewpoints of things today in today's world. We're going to also explore co-creating another thing that Ken was a part of, Taos Institute, celebrating his 30th year. So we're going to go into that. And we're going to continue to go into more things with Ken and learn more about who he is and how he feels about what's going on in today's world. All power to the developing. We'll be back right after these short commercial breaks. Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. We are back. We are back. All power to the developing. We are back with Ken Gergen. Um, in the first part of the interview, in the interview, the conversation, one of the terms or the words I heard being used a lot was co-create, co-creation. And uh, besides being a seminal figure in social constructionism, you also played a very seminal role in the creation of the Taos Institute. Could you speak about that, the Taos Institute, um, what it is, and where were you at the time with the people you were in the creation of this, the co-creation of the Taos Institute, and the role that co-creation has played in the Taos Institute over these last three decades? Oh. Yeah, well, let me tie it back to the constructionist work, because that's really important. I, I was primarily doing, I was an academic, and I still am, but I was primarily writing theoretical papers or critiques and so on, books for an academic audience. What I hadn't quite realized is that these were being, oh, in one book I wrote uh, called Saturated Self, which I wrote for a public audience uh, on the advent of postmodernism. And there were a lot of constructionist ideas built into that. <clears throat> What I hadn't realized, there were a lot of people picking up on these ideas and actually doing something with them. That is, they they create um, ways of, sort of new ways of practices of profession and professions that brought those ideas to life. And they started communicating with me. I'll just give you an example. Um, there's David Cooper, writer at uh, Case Western Business School, and he's he developed this practice called appreciative inquiry, in which they say, well, a problem is only a problem if you talk about it that way. How could we change an organization by changing the way we talk about things? Talk about not the problems, but what we value. And if we value these things, how could we create that organization in a way that would achieve those values? 
And what they found, they could go into organizations, have that kind of discussion, and create major transformation in an organization. Just by the where you focus the talk, where the dialogue goes, the questions you ask. Whereas organizational change before had been done like a science. You could have a whole lot of people, consultants coming in, studying everything and giving you recommendations. But for them, you could just change the conversation. And three days of talk could change the whole organization and be, people have people on board because it represented what they valued. Anyway, this was one. It was also going into therapy. Uh, narrative therapy, for example, is a person comes in with a problem. The problem is co-constructed. That is, it's a, it's a problem only because you look at it that way. It's a story you're telling about yourself. Let's say a story of failure. So don't go into find what, well, why you think you're a failure and why your father treated you in a way you think you're a failure and what kind of drug would help you, but let's find a different story. Restory it. What if you found all the ways you succeeded? What if you could see it that way? And so on and so on. There were these, it was, this was happening in a lot of areas. And I came to know these people because they would often communicate to me, look, I'm raising your ideas, I think you'd be interested in this. So Taos came together for me as a way of linking academics with practice, with practitioners, with people who were doing things in the world, making actual changes. And that appealed to me a lot because academics seemed to write to each other Nothing ever happens except more papers. And here was a way to break out of that and actually be being in a dialogue with people who are changing organization, changing therapy, change, doing community building, you know, in, in a way which recognized that we create. You start a dialogue in a certain way and you can change the future. So that was the beginning of the Taos Institute. And what we found is just a lot of people were into this and it got bigger and bigger and there was a lot of enthusiasm. So over the years we've, I don't know, we've published books, we've had annual conferences, we've um, had a PhD program for a while, a master's program for a while, workshops, um, and that's still going on and now we're into our 30th year. So that gives you a sense of yeah. Before, that, yeah. Before we go into that kind of 30 years of work, um, something I just thought of is, you know, I just kind of thought of you earlier speaking about how you were kind of outcasted and rejected and pushed out. And here you are now being reached out to people yeah. wanting to build with you, people wanting to join you and, and, you know, you're to the point where it grew faster than what you said to even you being able to kind of put your hands on it. It just kept growing and growing and growing. How is it? How is that for you to 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 go from that moment of you using your your mind to challenge things or challenge assumptions or challenge ideas and being outcasted to now you challenging things and challenging ideas and you having a new new appreciation and people are joining you in this process of challenging, of building, of how is that for you personally on a personal level? 
Well, you've got to imagine that it's very affirming. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, you've got all these cars and some people, and then people are beginning to say, hey, look, I can do something with these ideas. And they're things that I value. I mean, they're not, they're using them in ways that I think, and I can say more about that, than ways that I think are promising for the future of humankind. So, yeah, it, clearly I was drawn to that. Um, slowly, academics began to change as well, but at a much slower pace. Um, I also began to look uh, negatively at what academics is all about. I mean, I, I can say more about that later, too, if you want to get into it. But I think academic life is primarily for academics. And what they write about is primarily to, within status structures within the academic world and whether it has anything to do with the world and, and outside of academics is questionable. Nobody reads the paper, speak up. Hardly anybody knows anything about what goes on, and they don't write for people outside. So, I, I again, I, I have, particularly at this point now, I'm thinking about right now a, a book try, on that topic, trying to say how could you take the social sciences, transform them so that they were in the world, so that they were involved with the problems we're facing in the future or right now because they're huge yeah. you can't have a huge thousands of people in the social sciences not only psychology but elsewhere highly trained highly sophisticated but mainly serving themselves mm -hmm. so and also i, I think it, it pushes people away um the same way you felt alienated a lot of people feel alienated from academia in the sense they feel that they can't be a part of it they're not they're not intelligent enough to be a part of it they don't hold the requirements or the prerequisites to be a part of it and um like you said who, who do those journals who are those journals for or those papers for do they relate to the average person and i think i think you know that's a a bit i think that's a bit sad because there are so many people out there that I think want to get more involved in this. A lot more yeah. people that want to yeah. dip their feet into this world and want to pursue academia in whatever form um, that is for them, whether it's higher education, whether it's taking some type of vocational class, or whether it's even just opening up a book. Um, how many more people would like to probably read and read these days? So I think the the elitism of the educational system really does a disservice to us as a society, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the question I feel has gotten so far away from anything very much that people care about or can is useful. And that was a tragedy. I'll give you just one example. I mean, mainly research that we do in the social sciences is just to gaze at what's happening and report on it. You know, X number of people did that, blah, 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 this number of uh, did X and this did Y, and so and then give a report as if somehow things will change just because of that report, which nobody will particularly read in the first place. I'm not saying all, but 95% is dead. And it doesn't speak to anyone outside because you can't read it. It's not meant to be read meant to be 
using the refined language of that community. So contrast that with action research, participatory action research, which I'm very big on, where academics work with people in communities, in spaces, work with them. That is, they add their expertise, but they listen. So that becomes a collaborative project to make change happen. So we become part of the dialogues of the culture, not simply gazing at it and reporting, but actually involved in the in the co-creation of change. And you have a, some wonderful um, psychologists in, in New York City who do exactly that kind of thing, as they do a number of other places, but it's, uh, I treasure that kind of research. Breaking the power walls, getting academics into the end of the life of the culture and, and adding to it, contributing to it. And what, what I could assume, like for a lot of people, that's not easy, you know, um, that's why your movement exists to begin with, because it's kind of to break out of these walls. Um, what kind of message do you have to people in the academic world that maybe feel stuck or feel constrained and, and want to do something and may not know what they want to do, but they want to do something to kind of break out of the monotony of, of maybe yeah. where they're at with your you know experience and over the years of building with several academics, I'm sure in several different fields, several different countries. What are some things that you noticed that work for academics that feel stuck? Uh, the first thing to do is to be, go into dialogue with some other people who have similar issues or or um, just talk with people. Um, again, there's where the new realities come, the values and the openings. Go create something. I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a big movement in the United States right now called Braver Angels. It's a group that tries to go around parts of the, around the country, even into the government, to bring together polarized people to try to talk with each other. Going back to this, but we just yell across the fence, talk to each other. And they have a form of dialogue that they engage in. They just don't come in and talk. They're asked certain kinds of questions. You know, well, for example, what do they value in the other's opinion? Not, how horrible it is, but what do you value? What, you know, they have what kinds of questions which can bring you together. <clears throat> now, again, that you, I can give you the website, but it, it's a huge operation, and it's not Democrat or Republican. It's dialogic. It's trying to bring us back to some kind of community of a whole. That's the attempt. That whole operation is is a group primarily who come out of family therapy. They're therapists who say, look, maybe some of these skills or these ways we have of working with broken families might work with broken communities. And so they fashion along with other people who've got work with peace building and so on to create a technology, if you will, <clears throat> how we can talk together. So if you get together with a group of people, say, what could we do? How could we do it? Um, the sky's the limit. I mean, it's I, 
I just saw a piece in the paper the other day where two teenagers were worried about the fact that so, these were girls. The girls had so many problems and nobody talked to them. They couldn't share. So they set up a website where you could share your problems. And you could also offer your advice to other people. They just set it up. Now they have 20,000 people on that site. I go, hey, this is my problem. And other people say, oh, I had that problem too. And this is what I did about it. Um, so they just did it. You know, it was like, well, what could we do? And those kinds of creative exercises come out of dialogue. Definitely. Definitely. That's great advice from Ken right there. If you are stuck, get together with some other people and make it happen. Share some ideas, share some thoughts, and definitely make it happen. Um, you, we spoke about it a little earlier. Taos is celebrating its 30th anniversary. Um, some businesses don't last 30 years. Some organizations don't last 30 years. Some friendships, some marriages don't last 30 years. Don't make it to 30 years. A lot of things don't make it to 30 years. I mean, how is it for you and your organization to, to, to not only be around for 30 years, but be such a prominent uh, organization that has gave, given such support to academics all around the world and yeah. what you guys have built? Um, speak on that you know 30 years is i think sometimes when we we say these numbers and anniversaries it just sounds very i guess pleasing to the ears but when you really think about it 30 years of building an organization is a lot of work so that's it's, yeah. it's, maybe it's a little bit of me also giving some praise to what you guys have built too well realize that by and large outside of administration we all do it voluntarily. There are no nobody draws a salary except people who have to do the busy work. No. Um, and that is built on on exactly working together. You create the the power importance of it. That is, you get together and say it's, it's like a synergy when you come together and then it becomes tremendously important to do that but again you co-create the significance that's also been buttressed and i think it's really been important by a lot of people who who find the ideas and the practices stimulating and significant themselves so you find yeah there are a lot of people who really need want hope and they they add so the dynamic, so it's, it's an enthusiasm that feeds on itself. And it's very little money involved. We often worry about, well, we've got enough money to pay the administrators. We're not out for profit. Um, we're just out to, because we believe some of these ideas have the potential to change the world for a bit better. Wow, amazing. That's amazing work right there. Just putting your energy, your time together, um, especially on a volunteer level. What are some of the challenges of that? Um, if you don't mind asking, what are some of the challenges of just having an organization of that magnitude over these over the 30 years? What have been some of the challenges for you? 
Well, there are all sorts of challenges. I mean, well, and they do take the, a lot of time. Besides the basic administrative stuff, you know, you got to switch over computers and this changes from that. And yeah, this, no, this I'm other. Well, for example, um, we we have what's called associates of people who sort of, in one way or another, come close and wanted to work with us. But where do you draw the line on who's in and who's out? And why should you have those lines? What if everybody were an associate? What if nobody was an associate? Uh, how do you draw that line? And we still don't have a good sense of how to do that. It's just like, it, we don't want to make it too firm. That's one of them. It's the same with the ideas. You don't want to have a set of ideas that are so hard bound <clears throat> that there's no dialogue, there's no building. So how do you keep a central core, but you don't keep a central core, <laughs> if you will? I mean, there's nothing about constructionist ideas themselves, for example, which which invite uh, talk about Holy Spirit, for example. But what if you had somebody who does constructionism but actually talks about the Holy Spirit too? You don't want to rule that out. What you don't want to do is comb it into the dialogue. How does that enrich us to talk in that way? That is, don't have a don't have a core which is inviolate. That is, which everybody must believe or you know, express allegiance to. But don't have it anything goes either. And how do you draw that line? That's that's an issue. Where, yeah. you know, where do you go with that? Yeah. How do you deal with multi uh, multilingual? If you have a conference, uh, English tends to, I mean, it grew up in mainly the United States and Canada, for example, and a little bit in Mexico, but the people who spoke English, but now it's everywhere. But people don't share the same languages. How do you have a? How do you have meetings in, in five languages? I mean, how do you have them? How do we translate into Chinese and Japanese? Like, for example, and because those those kind of languages rule in and rule out people. You don't want to rule them out, but you can't have every language in every conference, and it's really hard to know how to grapple with that. Um, those are some of the issues. Yeah, yeah, growing, growing pains. I, I, um, probably, you know, as you grow and as more people from more countries come, more languages come in, and as yeah. more, 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 more interesting people come in, more possible associates come in. So definitely some growing pains there with uh, yeah. growing the organization. Um, we love to definitely wish uh, the Taos a happy 30th anniversary and. Um, Cheers to many more. Um, lastly, I would like to talk about kind of your relationship with the Eastside Institute and, and you know, how you've rubbed shoulders with us, how your work has impacted um, us, and has our work impacted you and, and vice yeah. versa. Now, here's a good example, by the way, of people who share a certain range of ideas in these two groups, but not all. So when I at first was sort of invited by um, Fred and Lois to come and talk at the Eastside Institute, and ultimately after several years to debate with Fred on various things. 
and I was wonderfully treated. I mean, it just people were very, very nice to me in terms of listening and not condemning or trying to find out who was right and who was wrong. We both shared a philosophic interest in Wittgenstein and to some extent Vygotsky, but that was more Wittgensteinian. I, I don't want to go into that, but the Eastside Institute at that time was more socialist Marxist. We were trying not to be ideologically committed in order to, in order not to. We needed to bring people together, not not divide into small groups against each other. So we, there was a tendency for us to be less ideologically invested and yet mutually respectful. So that out of our agreements, Fred and I actually wrote on mental illness and that problem I talked about earlier. Um, Lois has been a major figure in, in Towson's too. She's been really important inputs into into that those conversations. Um, I must also say that I was impressed with the several things in the East Side Institute. For one, the, the theater, uh, that, that you could use theater significantly, not only in terms of messages, but also in terms of involving people to do something in the inner city. I was also really impressed with the fact that the um, talent show that they had each year of young people. I, I just thought fabulous. That was like, what a great idea that was. Not only featuring the talent, but having the young people actually put on the show. It was like fantastic. I was impressed also with the therapy in the sense that it said, look, let's not put these people in diagnostic categories. Let them work together to develop. Why do you have to look at it as an illness? Bring people together and make it a, de a developmental issue. All those things really attracted me. So I'd say that and I've you know, spoken highly of those and shared them with a lot of people, and they've affected my work as well. So there's been a really nice sense of mutuality over the years. Again, some tensions on the side, but far, far less important than what we shared. And it's 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 always great when you find people like that that you can share your ideas with. Yeah, it's not you're not judged, contested. It's just kind of like hearing each other out and sh putting it on the table and just kind of vibing out with each other. Yeah, and I, it, yeah, we was mainly concentrating on things we shared, and those were so significant and so inspiring. That uh, the rest of it just sort of goes into the background. And that's a good model. I mean, you don't have to agree about everything in order to create a wonderful world together. You don't you don't have to use the, those points where you're not really a, totally in sync to say, okay, you're different. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Let's find the things that do work. In this case, they're big overlaps. Yeah, yeah. Ken, thank you so much for being with us today on uh, all power to the developing and just sharing some of your thoughts with us and talking about your history and talking about your work and talking about co-creating and all the ideas of social constructionism. What can the world expect from you today? Like what are some of the plans you have for yourself and for the organization 
in the near future? What are some things that you are excited about that maybe we need to be excited about for the new future? And obviously you're an author. You have these three books, The Saturated Self. You have The Relational Being, Being Self and Beyond Self and Community and Towards Transformation and Social Knowledge. Do we have another book on the horizon somewhere in there? Well, there's one that's there's a textbook which just came out in its fourth edition. I'll call it, yeah, I guess you made Invitation to Social Construction. That's just a fourth edition just came out. I've written also a small book um, on the, called The Relational Imperative. It's a small book that Taos published. I just say, look, the ideas that are involved here focus on the the significance of the relational, because if that goes well, how does the relationship go? Our world depends on how we relate all the way from the local to the global. And at this point, given the given the impending problems of the world, those relate it becomes all the more important to pay attention to that process of relating, not your well-being and mine, but ours. So. I'm trying to move practices, again, in academics and in what we do in Taos, to the development of practices and consciousness about the significance of that relational process. Yes. Where can people, if they want to learn more about your work, would like to maybe purchase some of your literature, um, sign up for things? Learn about Taos. Where are some websites? Oh, where can people go? Uh, the simple way um, is but most of my stuff is I've tried to, well, a lot of it I've put online. But you can go to the Taos Institute. We developed something called World Share Books, where we give them away. You just download them. And they're in, like, I think, 11 languages now. Mm. And a lot of those are central constructionists. Some of them are about practices in various parts of the world. So you go to the Taos Institute website, or you can go to World Share Books. World Share Books. And, and we just give them away. Nice. So you heard it there, everyone. We got some nice resources, free resources for you on the Taos Institute website. You can go right over there and check that out. And come on, man. You know books are very pricey today. So to get some free resources. Exactly. Hey, that's an offer if I ever heard one. I would like to thank everyone for being here at All Power to the Developing. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to let us know what you thought about this episode and all of the other previous episodes, you can write to us at podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. I repeat, that is podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. You can write to us and we would love to share your comment at the end of an episode. All Power to the Developing is available on all major platforms. So whether you're on a run, a hike, you're working, you're cooking, you're, you're sitting in your bed, laying in your bed, whether you're on your phone, your laptop, your tablet, you can listen to it in all the various forms that you would like to. Thank you, Ken Gergen, for being with us today on this episode of All Power to the Developing. And sayonara. Peace. All Power to the Developing was made possible in part by 
Growing Social Therapeutics, the Baylor Wolf Fund.